Can you imagine this scene for just a moment? Enter into it with me, if you would. You know, Jerusalem is jammed with people, crowds, kids running amok, travelers making their way through the city. It is festival time in Jerusalem. Three times a year, devout Jewish pilgrims would make their way to the city of Jerusalem for a festival. And this time it is the Feast of Weeks. 50 days after Passover, which was the time that Jesus died and was resurrected. It's crowded. It's hot. I imagine it a little bit like making your way through the taste of Chicago or the lakefront at the air and water show. There's people everywhere. And at this same time that the Jewish community is celebrating this festival, which is a celebration of the harvest of grain, and a celebration of God's covenantal promises to that community. At this same time, the earliest followers of Jesus are also gathered in Jerusalem. The first chapter in Acts that precedes the one we read tells us that there are about 120 of the earliest Christians gathered, and they had just finished replacing Judas the betrayer who was one of them, with a man named Matthias. And they're gathered together. They have no clue what is about to happen. They've simply done what Jesus told them to do before he left, which was to wait for his sending of the Spirit. They really don't know what that means. They'd never had this sort of moment And they were filled. This is just 50 days after everything happened at the end of the life of Jesus and his resurrection. And I can imagine them getting together. I wonder, they probably asked, who are we? What is our identity as a community now that Jesus has left? And I wonder, what what are we supposed to do? I wonder, did anybody write down what he said I wonder, do you remember that time he told that story about that farmer or about that fisherman? Maybe, maybe that applies right now as we're trying to find our way. I wonder if anybody else is still a little confused about what that resurrection from the dead thing really meant for us. I wonder if we should meet together, but let's do it in a house that's a bit maybe off the grid a little bit. You know, the last time people gathered together in a religious fervor, it resulted in the bloody death and crucifixion of Jesus. And, well, maybe they weren't ready for that to happen to them. So they met in a house. And I wonder, maybe, if we should pray. Jesus told us he would not leave us. He would send the Spirit. So they meet And the passage we just read said this, that the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where the 120 of them were sitting. And they began to speak in other tongues, languages they did not know. And God-fearing Jews from every nation who were there for the festival caught literal wind of this and came running to see What was happening? There are over 300 languages spoken in the United States alone. 
According to SIL International, there are roughly 7,000 languages that are spoken or signed across the world. Can you imagine if just 50 of them were all uttered at once? Can you imagine the sound, the cacophony of voices, people speaking in languages they did not know? And standing back, looking on the scene, men and women who are educated religious leaders who could afford to travel to Jerusalem are trying to figure out how this ruddy band of Galileans know their language. Galileans weren't exactly the most polished, educated folks. And here they are, 120 of them, speaking eloquently in languages they don't know. Clearly, as scripture tells us, they're perplexed. Maybe they wonder what is happening. How do they know this group of folks that's a little bit unsightly? How do they know my native tongue? I wonder, have they been drinking Already, And I wonder why there are so many of them together and they seem at peace. They seem of one accord. And finally, as we read, Peter steps up. Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus less than two months earlier, who lied his way out of a commitment to Jesus. An impulsive, unlikely guy steps up and says, friends, it's nine o'clock in the morning. It's way too early for a cocktail. These folks aren't drunk. The prophet Joel said this was going to happen. The prophet Joel said, everyone in the last days, I will pour my spirit out on all people, young and old, male and female, slave and free, every tongue, every tribe, every skin color, every nation. This is what I will do. And Peter said to the onlookers, friends, this is what indeed is happening. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon these people. You know, I read this text and I try to find myself in it, and I simply confess, I, I just don't have any sense of what that scene would have been like. I can sort of imagine fire or hearing languages that I don't know, but... You know, my only experience in crowds really just comes from gapers delays in traffic and concerts and county fairs and in any of those places I've never seen the Spirit of God unleashed upon people the way it was in Pentecost. But what I know is that this wasn't the Spirit of God coming in that moment and then leaving never to return. What I know is that what Jesus said to the followers then and what he says to us today is that while I am not physically there with you, I have sent the Holy Spirit to be with you. So that when any of us ask the same questions those early followers asked, who am I in Christ? Now that I said I believed Jesus, what am I supposed to do how do I follow? How do I pray? How do I gather? What do I do? When we ask those questions and we ask them honestly and earnestly with pure hearts, the Spirit of God meets us. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. This is considered the very beginning of the church, the birth of the church. And it is the story of the Spirit of God coming to God's people then and now. And one of the conversations I know Dan is having just down the hall with the contemporary crowd this morning is 
the way that God promised the Spirit would come. And if we look into John, if any of you go this week and you read John chapters 14, 15, and 16, you see this marvelous conversation about the way the Spirit of God is present with people. And we're told in John that the Holy Spirit is a comforter who calms our fears. Those moments where you're gasping for air, where the water line is right here in life. Maybe you're clamoring, you're clawing your way up the hill trying to just simply stay alive. You've got dirt under your fingernails and fear creeping into your heart. Do you know what God says? I will comfort you. I may not pretty it up exactly the way you thought it was going to be, but I will be there with you. When the phone rings with the phone call you never wanted, when the diagnosis comes, when the unexpected happens, when the darkness seems all too close, I will comfort you. I will give you my spirit and my spirit will comfort you. The Holy Spirit, we are told, is a comforter. Jesus tells us that in John. We're also told the Spirit is an advocate who works on behalf of God and uses us for his advocacy. God says, I want to bring good, beautiful things to this world, and I will do my work through you. I will advocate for the kingdom of heaven through you. The Spirit of God is an advocate who works for justice and mercy and peace and truth and hope and uses us to do it. We're told the Spirit of God is a counselor who at any age and stage of life will teach us something new. God's mercies are new every morning. And most of us know we sometimes have heard the most profound spiritual truths uttered from the mouths of young children, maybe three or four years old, and from friends and loved ones, 93 or 94 years old, right? The Lord speaks good truths and counsels us, teaches us goodness no matter where we are. And finally, we're told in John, the Holy Spirit is a helper who emboldens and empowers us to do God's good work. You know, God doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, now you go do that thing and I hope you don't get hurt along the way. God helps us. The Spirit of God is sent to help us do the things of God, those inklings, those prayers, those nudges we feel to go walk across the room to have the hard conversation, to give of ourselves, to enter into a community, to rearrange our finances, whatever it is we feel called to, the Spirit of God will help us do that. We are told that the Holy Spirit is all of these things, that we will be comfort, advocated, receive advocacy, counseled and helped by the Spirit of God in Pentecost is that moment where this begins to happen. Now, any of you, if you've ever needed a guide to move you through something, will understand more fully than what it is to need the Holy Spirit to guide us. You know, the Holy Spirit just doesn't come to us and stop there. The reason the Holy Spirit comes is to guide us toward God's good ends. How many of you have ever needed a guide to get you somewhere on a vacation, right? Maybe a guidebook, maybe a traipse across Europe. A guide can get you anywhere. 
from a Holy Land tour of Israel to finding your way through Manhattan in rush hour. A guide can get you up a mountain. A guide can show you where to sit, sleep, eat, climb, camp, wait for a bus, wait for a train, wait for the dawn to break over a ridge. A guide will get you places. Another person who acts in your life like a guide will get you from where you think you can't go to places you could never imagine. Now, I had a very, very frivolous experience just this past week of being guided by someone in um, a stroke of stupidity, probably. I decided a couple months ago to start playing ice hockey, right? I mean, because why not, right? <laughs> My husband laughed. He's like, mostly middle-aged people probably shouldn't pick up a contact sport at this point in life, but I did. And I had my first ever, like, big girl hockey game this week. I have no idea. I have watched hockey for decades, and when you're on the ice, it's a completely different story. Everybody's moving fast, and there's lines everywhere, and the puck is flying around. And a girl who I had just met that night said to me, stick with me, I'll make sure you don't get hurt. <laughs> and she was on the same line I was on, and every time I got out there, I would look at her, and she would go like this if I was standing in the wrong place. And that time in hockey, you know, where you switch goals at the other end, one time she kind of caught the look in my eye that I was probably going to try to score on the wrong goal. And so she's like, you're going this way, right? Remember. And she would wink at me, and she would high-five me. She told me where to stand. She guided me through the experience. I would have been hurt, confused, and probably yelled at by all of my teammates were it not for her. She encouraged me. She moved me through a process. And you know what she could tell you and what any guide could tell you is that if you're going to lead people, they can't be stubborn people. If I looked at her and said, I don't need your help. I read a couple books. I got this. It wouldn't have worked. A mountain guide will tell you that one of the most obnoxious, frustrating things they can work with is a person who shows up to be led on a trip that thinks they know more than the guide. You can't get anywhere if you don't surrender and submit yourself to the leadership of the spirits of God. To say we are God's people and that God's spirit has fallen down on us requires something of us. It requires that we submit to God and we submit to his kingdom purposes, which any of us who've thought about it for two seconds will tell you it is easier said than done. What do we do to be the people that received the Spirit of God in the same way those believers did? You know why God came to those folks? They were earnest. They did not have an agenda. They had no idea what God was going to do. No idea. But he told them to gather, and he told them he would come, and they believed him. So they showed up and they waited. They waited with pure hearts, and they waited together in community. God did not come to just one of them. He came to a community of them. And what I know is that there are two things that I have found in my life and in the lives of others and in Scripture. There's more than two, but these are the two that I hold most closely that lead us 
into that place where we can receive the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the first is to simply live generously, to not hold tightly to that which we think we deserve, we think we've earned, we think we have coming. You know, if you read all the way through the chapter that we covered this morning, you'll find yourself at the very end of it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And listen, this is the continuation of the story. All the believers were together after this experience. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place. Here's the generosity. They shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their number, their fellowship, those who were being saved. Friends, the Spirit of God does not exist to do our bidding. Now, I have in my mind a general idea on how I want to see life go down. I want God to bless my agenda. I want God to be comprehensible to me. I want God to fit in the box that I have fashioned for him. I don't want to be asked to shift that box or expand that box or completely get rid of it. I want God to do the work that I want him to do, not the work he wants to do. That is probably true for most of us. It's human nature. Because my agenda is to keep myself fat and happy, comfortable, cover college, have a nice spring break. I have an agenda, and I want God to bless that. And that can often mean I am less than generous. And I know for a fact I do not feel the Spirit of God in my life When I am tight-fisted with the things I've been given, with the time I've been given, the talents I've been given, the resources, whatever it is that God has given all of us, if we are generous with it, if it flows out of us, that gives God space to flow in. The Spirit of God cannot come into a storehouse where the shelves are already full. A generous spirit is what we need. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. He says that we receive gifts, right? We have a storehouse of gifts we received. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the good things of the Spirit, for the common good. Not for our own vain glory or our own pursuits, but for the goodness of all. Barbara Brown Taylor once said that salvation is not something that happens only at the end of a person's life. She says salvation happens every time someone with a key uses it to open a door that they could have locked instead. This is generosity. The Spirit of the Lord will come to a generous people. And second, the Spirit of the Lord will come to people who are together. It is no coincidence that the Spirit of God rained down on a community of people. Yes, there are individual elements of faith. Yes, there is a place for solitude, for silence, for God speaking in your life and in your heart when perhaps you're one-on-one. 
But the reason for that work of God is only to bring you back to a community of people stronger and more enabled than you were when you first left. No one will move through their lives empowered by the Spirit of God if they are determined to do it alone. God himself is community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling together in community. We are made in the image of God. We were born for community. Introvert, extrovert, outgoing, reserved, it doesn't matter. I don't know what that looks like for you, whether that's a mentorship, a deep friendship, a small group, corporate worship. But the Spirit of God will not do the good work in our lives unless we are committed to doing it together. It takes generosity, realizing it's not about us, and it takes realizing that we do it together. You know, a generous spirit pulls you instantly to people. If you are alone, there's really nobody to be generous to, right? I can tell you firsthand the power of community will transform your life and the lives of those you love, not just for the sake of getting together and hanging out, but because the Spirit of God will come to people who get together with earnest hearts and generous spirits and pray for God's work to be done in their lives, for comfort, for help, for counseling, for advocacy. So what about us here today? What, what do we do with this story? We've been here together for almost an hour. We don't have fire sweeping through the room. I don't hear anybody speaking in another language at this moment. What are we supposed to do? How do we figure out what this means when you leave here this morning? Richard Rohr says, We do not think ourselves into new ways of living, but we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Simply need to go from here this morning and think to yourself, live to yourself into a new way of the Spirit. Is there a place that you could be generous that's been nagging at you, an invitation you could extend, a conversation you could use to encourage, a gift you could give? Are there people that you see and wonder what it would be like to be in community with them, to help them? Have you wondered, maybe one of these days you should take Eric up on his invitation to join a small community? About 10 years ago, I served alongside Dave Mahar in our student ministry, our high school ministry. We had four girls come up to me once. They had just for the first time found themselves exposed to the rigors of poverty in the developing world. Everybody has that first moment when you realize you know, the western suburbs isn't how it is for the rest of the world. And they had learned that in Zambia there were children their age that just couldn't drink clean water and they were dying of very easily curable, fixable diseases because they just didn't have clean water. And these four girls came and said, I wonder, I wonder... What if we stopped going to Jamba Juice and Starbucks and out for ice cream and all the things that teenagers do? I wonder what if we stopped downloading stuff on iTunes and took that money and gave it to God's good cause? I wonder if we could get our friends to do the same. I wonder if we could actually achieve something without asking our parents to chip in a big check. I wonder if a group of four high school girls could make a difference in Zambia. 
And those girls prayed. They sought God's will. They were together. They tried to live out of a generous spirit. And in three months, four high school girls raised $10,000 to dig a water well in Zambia. And watching those girls do that changed something in me. Because I would sit there with them and coach them, and I would find myself a little stingy sometimes, right? They were chipping their money in, and sometimes I was like, well, I really need coffee tomorrow morning. I I think I'm just going to hold back $3 to go to Starbucks. No, it changed me. It brought a generous spirit in me, being together. You know, and stories like that abound. They abound. Stories like that, God's story and his people. I mean, there's, there's too many stories to tell all throughout the day, all around the world. When God gets a hold of a few generous hearts who are committed to being together to seek his will, he will do tremendous things. That, scripture tells us, is where the church is born. And the church is born every time people like us get together and we live generously, we act in community, and we bring the goodness of God to the places where God wants it to go. Amen? Amen. So if you would allow me to close us in prayer. It's a prayer from a theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann. And it's a prayer about the Spirit of God, and it's a prayer called On Generosity. So if you would close your eyes and settle in as I close us, and I think the wise words that he once prayed. Dear Lord, on our own, we conclude that there is not enough to go around. We are going to run short of money, love, grades, publications, sex, members, years, life, stories. We should seize the day, seize our goods, seize our neighbor's goods. Lord, we fear there is just not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. Your spirit comes. You come giving bread in the wilderness, children at the 11th hour, homes to exiles, futures to the shutdown, Joy to the dead, you come fleshed in Jesus. Your spirit comes. And we watch while the blind receive sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. And we watch as we eat food we did not grow and enjoy the lives we did not invent. A future that is a gift, a gift, a gift, and our families and neighbors who sustain it when we did not deserve it. And then it dawns on us late, dear Lord, late rather than soon, that you give all things in due season. You opened your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And Lord, by your giving, we pray that you break our cycles of imagined scarcity, override our presumed deficits, quiet our anxieties, transform our fields to see the abundant mercy and blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And finally, Lord, sink your generosity deep into our lives, that your muchness may expose our false lack, that endlessly receiving we may endlessly give, so that this world may be made new, that all things around us toward your end may be new. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.